0: The first semester of the first year is pivotal in helping students see themselves as scholars. In this episode, we explore one strategy for captivating student attention and igniting a passion for learning.
1: Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
0: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist
1: and Rebecca Mushter, the graphic designer.
0: Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego.
1: Our guest today is Dr. Scott Furlong, a political scientist and our provost at SUNY Oswego. Welcome, Scott.
2: Thanks, John. Glad to be here. Today's teas are... My tea is coffee because I stupidly forgot that they serve tea here.
0: (laughs) We'll accept coffee drinkers too.
1: And I'm drinking a blend of peppermint spearmint and tarragon tea. I've
0: reverted back to my old good time.
1: English afternoon? Yeah. (laughs) SUNY Oswego is introducing a series of new first year courses this fall. And before we talk about what we're doing at Oswego, Do you tell us a little bit about your own experiences with first-year courses at Green Bay?
2: Sure. Back probably almost 12 years ago at Wisconsin Green Bay, I was director of our first-year programs on our campus. We had recognized that we had some pretty good first-year programs, but we were missing what I would have considered the most critical part, which was the academic aspect of it. And I had been to a number of first-year conferences, had done a lot of work reading in first year, and And we were behind in that area. We did not really have any type of academic course for our first-year students. A number of our faculty, myself and about five others, decided we were going to do this on our campus. And literally a colleague and myself were sitting on an airplane coming back from a first-year conference. It was literally on an airplane napkin, sort of sketched out what we wanted to do in the development of a first-year seminar for our students. And when we started at Green Bay, we needed to deal with some of the traditional questions around resources. How are we going to afford to do this? So we made a conscious decision that We were going to take some of our existing general education courses that are basically introductory to the major and bring those larger sections of classes down to a smaller seminar size class. But we wanted to make sure that we were also going to infuse into these courses some amount of co-curricular activities and programs that students would have to go to that were diversity-based, leadership-based, health and wellness-based, academic lectures. And then we also incorporated an interdisciplinary exercise where we would bring the students from the six classes together in a big room and break them all up and have them solve what we thought was going to be a very interesting interdisciplinary problem using their disciplinary perspectives that they were learning throughout their normal semester. So that was the birth of our first year seminar courses. Those courses Grew in terms of the number. We offered six the first year, 12 the next, 15 the third year, eventually got up to 20. And we got to a point where we were assessing the heck out of these things, and it was clear that they were making a difference in terms of student engagement. We got it to the point where we were adding it to our general education program. The courses at that point were a lot different than how we originally initiated them. They were not intro American government, they were not intro to psychology. They were what we started calling passion courses at UW Green Bay, and we stole that term. That came out of Millersville University down in Pennsylvania, and they were courses that were interdisciplinary in nature and in topic, but they basically were around topics and areas that faculty cared a lot about, and some of them were very much within their research or teaching interest. Others were really far afield where they would bring their discipline and other interdisciplinary perspectives into that course. And those courses we found were much more amenable to a first-year seminar than trying to ensure that we got all 26 chapters of an intro psych book. In addition to everything else we wanted to do, when you can actually build the course around some of these activities, we found it to be a much more successful process.
0: Did you maintain those classes as part of the general education requirement, or did it shift to being something else?
2: Two years into the first-year pilot, I had become dean by then the provost at the time had asked me to lead a general education reform effort. We knew pretty early that we wanted, because we had already collected a lot of very positive data, that adding a first-year seminar would be something that would be a strong aspect of our general education. We really followed some of the AAC and U perspectives around general education, that your gen ed should be mission-based, should be based on what you're most proud about at your institution. And again, at Green Bay, we were really strong around interdisciplinarity, Almost all of these new freshman seminars were interdisciplinary in base, so it ended up being sort of its own three-credit requirement, not meeting any type of disciplinary domain-type requirement, but just the idea that you had to take a first-year seminar.
1: Did that interdisciplinary requirement stay as part of the program? It was when I left. <laughs> okay. And you said there were multiple classes that worked together on a general problem?
2: Yeah, that didn't Does last that... as long. <laughs> There's a great story there that I'll tell. The faculty got very excited. One of the things that I most enjoyed about the process at Green Bay was the informal faculty development that sprouted up around the first year seminar development. We would meet about every other week in our coffee house and pitch ideas and develop ideas and sort of frame what we thought the common learning outcomes ought to be. And one of the things we did is we came up with this common learning assignment and the idea we had, and at the time we thought it was a great idea was that a new planet was discovered, and we had to send people to this new planet and teach them about the planet Earth, and how would you do that, and how would you set up an institution of higher education in a way that would teach this new alien race about planet Earth. And we got cute, and the name of the planet was Tra-A, that's Earth with a little bit of turning <laughs> around of the letters, and we thought it was the coolest thing since sliced bread. The students hated it. Uh, <laughs> they couldn't get it, they weren't sure what they were doing. Although I will tell you, the presentations they gave were dynamite, given that they were first-year students that didn't really know what they were getting into. They really gave some really dynamite presentations. But we found out a little later in the semester that they had actually created a Facebook site called ihatrya.com. It was a
1: unifying experience. <laughs> it was a them. unifying
2: <laughs> experience. And so we tried that one more year, realized it wasn't working, shifted the interdisciplinary assignment a little bit, where it was a little bit more problem-focused and probably more lecture-oriented. We looked at issues and had faculty for from different disciplines try to talk about a problem or an issue from their perspective. And then eventually we moved away from that sort of common group assignment. It became a little bit unwieldy as we got to 12 classes, 15 right. classes to try to get that many classes together, or even as subsets of classes.
0: You mentioned that you did a lot of assessment related to the first year passion courses. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what your findings were? You mentioned student engagement, but can you dive a little yeah. bit more into that?
2: One of the things that I'll say right off the front is We went into this project knowing from our Nessie scores that our student engagement was pretty bad compared to the rest of the UW comprehensive campuses. So we knew we had a problem that we needed to address. We entered into this first year seminar not so much around issues of we need to address retention, which is often a reason that's put forward for bringing forth a first year seminar, but rather we wanted to improve engagement. With the idea, and again, research, bear this out, if you increase your engagement, you're going to have a positive impact on retention. So I had become friends and known some of the folks that work at Nessie, and specifically Jillian Kinsey, who's one of the lead researchers in the Nessie movement in Indiana. And I wrote to her and I said, listen, I know we're not on cycle for Nessie. <laughs> we were on, a, I think, a three-year cycle, much like Oswego, I think, mm-hmm. is now. And I said, but we're starting this new pilot program. We'd like to pull some of the Nessie questions and not only ask our pilot, but also ask some of our students who are not in the pilot. And what we found was engagement scores that were significantly greater across the board for the first year seminars. And I had a colleague that used to talk about this when we would go to conferences of red bars reaching to the sky because we had a nice little bar chart that we would show on our PowerPoint, which very dramatically showed the increase in engagement across a number of the Nessie criteria that they were looking at. We also found, and it didn't hold, but in the first year, we saw an 8% increase in retention as well for those students. Now, I know there was some selection bias there in terms of the students who were going into those courses, but we never saw anything less than 3% increase in all the years of the pilot. And so we knew we had found something that was going to work, at least at Green Bay.
1: And you taught one of these first year courses. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Course?
2: Well, I taught my first one was an Intro American Government, and that was the first year or two that we were doing this, and that was fun. It was great, and it's always nice to teach a class with 19 students rather than 120, which is what I was teaching. So you got to delve into some issues in a lot more detail, a lot more discussion based. But when I became dean, one of the things that I wanted to do, at least occasionally, is try to stay in the classroom a little bit. And it's sometimes hard as an administrator to carve out the time because you never know when your boss is going to ask for you. So I worked with a colleague, and we team-taught a course around issues of Disney. And we got cute, and I came up with the name of Inter Disney Plenarity as -hmm. the title of the course, and to sort of highlight the interdisciplinarity aspects of the class. She was an experimental psychologist, and we used our various perspectives to really examine issues of Disney, both in terms of the parks, the films, the culture. For example, I did a couple of different sections around how, at least Disney World, the one in Orlando, really is set up as its own government, almost like a Vatican City in Florida, because they have their own police force, they have everything, their own regulatory bodies, things like that. My colleague did a lot of work around architectural and planning background and planning theory, looking at people like Frank Lloyd Wright and others' names I'm not remembering in terms of how they did some of the urban planning and suburban planning in the United States and how Disney really pulled a lot of those issues in the building of the parks and why they were doing it and why it works the way they did. And then together, the two of us taught a part of the class on racial and gender issues around Disney, particularly some of their early films still to this day, but it was really biased in the early years. So it was a lot of fun. It was always a great way to engage academically in a fun topic. I will tell you, the students who signed up all thought they were going to watch Disney movies. We showed clips, but we rarely would show full films. And so I think they were disappointed in that, but I think they had a lot of fun in the class.
1: And they were learning things.
2: They were learning about the discipline. We did have some common learning outcomes. We had a writing requirement. We had an oral communication requirement. We had a critical thinking requirement. So all of these sort of skill-based activities that we all value as part of a strong liberal arts education is what we were introducing to them, and it was a way for them to engage in college-level work around topic areas that students find interesting. So you mentioned before we started, about zombies. We had courses on zombies and what would happen in a zombie apocalypse. And we had students who would put together basically action plans. And where would you go on our campus in order to survive a zombie apocalypse? And why would you do that? And so on and so forth. And and became competitive within the faculty in terms of the titles of the courses and whose course would fill first as part of the registration process.
1: This is a nice follow-up to last week's podcast with Wendy Watson, where we talked about writing a constitution after a zombie apocalypse.
0: As an instructor, how did you find the experience of teaching this passion course to be different from other courses that you taught?
2: Well, you go into your other courses, if you will, your normal course load at least after a few years, you go in relatively easily to these courses. At least I found in the case of one of my classes, I've taught a natural public policy class for 20 years and actually wrote a book on it. So you kind of walk in there and you don't need to think too much about what you're doing. I mean, that sounds terrible, but you get into a rhythm of your teaching and you keep current, but some of the theories remain the same. The highlights of the course remain the same. This course, there was a whole new set of readings. Because I was working with a colleague, it was not just making sure I was up to date on what I was worried about and taking lead on, but at least having some type of knowledge on what she was talking about. Because a lot of the class was discussion-based, which, again, was probably a a bit different compared to some of my lower-level classes in the past, which, because they're large, you have to do a little less discussion in those situations. The other thing I would say is different when you're teaching a first-year seminar compared to classes that have first-year students in it is that it's a rare situation for most faculty to teach all freshmen or all first-year students. And there is a dynamic change teaching a class like an economics class or an American government, where you're going to have a lot of freshmen, but you still have upperclassmen. And there is a dynamic that changes in that classroom in terms of modeling behavior and, and things like that. They're not too far away from being high school students. You've got to get them focused. You really need to engage them as you are college students now. There's an expectation. We're not going to go through every page of the textbook. We really expect you to do a large part of this work on your own so that you can bring your own perspectives and ideas to the classroom. And again, that was something that was different for me and a lot of our faculty, other than our English Comp faculty that did this. Because they're used to small classes. they used to small freshman classes. Most of us were not used to that. So that was the difference
0: having that experience right now. Mm-hmm. We have a freshman colloquium in my department that I've never taught before until this semester. And it's like, yeah, all right. We have to do these <laughs> things that I don't generally do in my other classes. And you've
2: got to be really intentional with the yeah. students, you yeah. know, and, which is a good thing anyway. But you can't just assume that they know how to do college work.
1: That's one of the benefits, I would think, of these courses, that it provides that bridge where you can focus on that without losing the upper-level students. And Mm -hmm. that intentional focus on their needs could be really helpful in getting them acclimated.
2: Getting them acclimated, being intentional about the type of work that you expect, the type of writing you expect, that you can't just copy and paste a Wikipedia thing and call it a paper. And the acclimation to the rest of the campus was a big deal for us as well and is for the Oswego courses. There are a lot of resources here. There are a lot of events that happen here. And yes, we're going to require you to go to some of those. But the hope there is not that we're making them do it. It's once they get there, they understand, hey, I actually enjoyed this. And I'm going to go to another one just without being required to do it.
0: Part of it is just figuring out the logistics of you've been doing it or where to find the information. Some students, if they don't have that guided experience, might never discover it. Yeah. There's so many other things going on.
2: Yeah, and we got to a point, at least for the first few years, where we actually were creating sort of cheat sheets of events so that they had a calendar in front of them so they didn't have to worry about finding those types
0: of things. This year, we're piloting first-year program at Oswego. Mm-hmm. Can you talk
2: a little bit about that program? Sure. We're piloting nine First-year signature classes. That was the title that they wanted to put on our group here in Oswego. The program was developed by a committee of faculty and staff that develop a number of common learning outcomes that are very similar to what we did at Green Bay: strong communication, critical thinking, issues. And then we recruited nine faculty from across the campus to engage in these ideas of I won't say a common pedagogy, but some common learning outcomes and structure classes. And we did call and passion courses, at least internally what is it that you want to teach? Is there something out there that maybe doesn't fit traditionally into your curriculum, but is of interest to you? Be creative about it. It's okay to have fun. Be fun about what you want to do, and then really think through how you get at these common goals but also the goals of the class itself. So we got a good group of nine diverse courses, and they did just a great job in the development and even went above and beyond in terms of how they pitched and advertised their courses to the incoming students. They all did one to two minute videos that our students actually did, which is great. And it really comes across very professional. You can see the passion in their faces. And I've already been told that a number of the faculty that have developed these first year courses, it's affecting how they think about their other courses as well.
1: That came up at several of the meetings. I've been attending those too. And many of the people are saying that once I've learned how to do these things or I've tried doing these things, and some of it was credit to a workshop that Rebecca did in the spring, but it's changing how they're teaching all their classes
0: conversations around the first year class has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Hearing those faculty talk through what they're doing and work together has been really interesting. And so what you described at Green Bay as being that informal learning community certainly evolved here.
2: What well, that's my sense too. Again, I specifically tried to stay away mm-hmm. from it a little bit. I didn't want my perspectives to fully guide what was happening. And I wanted this to be a bottom-up faculty-led thing. But everything I'm hearing is that the faculty are getting a lot out of those discussions and to really engage in teaching in a different way and around some different types of topics. And I think also to really think through the entire learning environment that we are providing here at Oswego, not just what's going on within the classroom. I think all the faculty, well, I know at least one or two, require their students to go to the, the info fair over at the arena last week. And actually I got passed on an email from a student who really credited, never would have gone to this unless I was required to. And by going, I actually signed up for four different organizations. So this is exactly why we do these types and of things. And that types
1: of connection makes a big difference yep. in retention and student success and engagement.
2: How did the students end up in these courses? They self-selected as part of the information that goes out as part of the registration process, late spring, early summer these were offered up as an opportunity for them to sign up as part of their process of submitting their list of desired courses or preferred courses for the fall. they wanted to be in one of these courses or any of these courses, they put it on. And then our first-year advisors then made their schedules much like they do now, but they just included that particular course. I think there was a little bit of a concern initially since these courses count, but they're electives like electives within our 120 graduation requirements. So I think there was some concern up front. Why would students take these courses? They don't count for gen ed, they don't count for the major, but they filled pretty quickly, which I think speaks to both the marketing, but also topic areas that students find interesting. And I think there are mechanisms for us to move forward to think that some of these courses could fit general education in traditional way,
1: I'm not sure if this has changed, but in early discussions of this, the goal was to have students request these courses with the hope that there'd be more people requesting courses than there would be slots. And then the students who applied for them but didn't get them could serve as a control group so that you could get a benchmark without that Mm self-selection issue.
2: Has that been maintained? I don't know if that's been maintained or not. I wasn't part of those discussions. There are other ways of getting at some of the control groups if Mm -hmm. we need to do that, whether it's simplistically students who did not take those courses or even pulling or surveying students that might be in like the English comm classes or the introductory math classes and using them as a pseudo control group. I'm going to let IR worry Mm -hmm. about how they want to get at some of those assessment issues. And I will say that some of the issues around assessment, some of the issues around the success of this program won't show up immediately and they won't necessarily show up in data. We had a situation at Green Bay in our first year where a student did not come back her second year. And the faculty member actually got a letter from the student that said, I want you to know that I really noticed how much time you spent with me. I noticed that you were paying attention to me and trying to get me involved. And I'm not going to be back in the spring semester, but I had a great experience here. This is just not the place for me. That's going to show up as a non-retained student and not a good statistic. But in many ways, that's a success story. And that's something you can't do in a lot of normal classes because you don't have the ability to really engage with students in that type of a close way. Do
0: you have any sense with the launch of the program this year, whether or not the students in those classes are in the same major as the faculty member Uh, teaching them, or do you think it's more mixed?
2: I don't know. I think it's more mixed, but it's a great question. And I'm going to guess they're mixed, but I haven't actually seen the enrollments. And the reason why I'm going to say they're mixed, Is that an incoming student would really have to pay attention to the bio of the faculty member, the description of the course, to be able to figure out, is this course really within a major that I'm interested in? The courses themselves do not scream communication or business or any of that. So you don't even have to do a lot of, not digging, it's all there, but they'd really have to pay a lot of attention to that. I'm sure there are some that did, but I'm not sure if that would be the majority or not. Could you give
1: us a few examples of some of these courses? Sure.
2: We've got nine, as I mentioned, and they are from all across campus. So Kat Blake is doing a course out of anthropology entitled The Talking Dead, Understanding Life from the Human Skeletal Remains. And I actually did print out the description a little bit here. And what she had written was, they help forensic anthropologists investigate murders, bioarchaeologists reconstruct life in the past. Paleo-pathologists examine past disease and trauma. These are the bones of the human skeletons, and they have stories to tell. And students will learn about the scientific techniques for evaluating skeletal remains, so on and so forth. Who doesn't want to play with bones, right? That's great. And then another course that is being offered is by Allison Rank out of the political science program. And the title of her course are The Witches Are Hunting Contemporary Feminist Activism in America. And she's looking at the Me Too movement and feminist theory and how these things have developed. And the interesting thing that she's doing with her courses. She is occasionally, I think once a week, linking up with Mary McHugh's course Out of History. And Mary's teaching, a course, entitled How New is the Hashtag Me Too, the History of Gender Activism in the United States. So those students will have the added benefit, at least from my perspective, it's an added benefit of having some of these discussions in an interdisciplinary way. These are all highly engaging type topics. We have a course on how comic book characters are portrayed. And why is it that we turn to comic book characters when we're looking at issues of justice? Why aren't we doing these things ourselves? We have a chorus out of theater that's looking at how black characters are portrayed within the arts and how that has evolved culturally. Another one out of theater that's actually looking at the interconnection between theater and sports. Again, these are all topics that, frankly, students coming into a college-university setting would never think that they would be able to study, frankly, a lot of things that we offer in the first year, students would never think about that <laughs> studying coming out of high school. But I really believe strongly that wrapping these accessible topics around college-level work is a really effective way to get students to think like college-level students and to get them prepared for the type of work that we want them to do as they're moving through their years on campus.
1: When I heard some of the topics, I wanted to sit in on All of those classes. They
2: also. I think I'm going to. I'm going to try to make some time to to sit in on these and try to get a sense of how they're going. They sound like a lot of fun.
0: They sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. And the videos are pretty fun too.
2: The videos are great. There's a balance of the funness. I've had people, frankly, I had a former provost when we were really implementing our first year seminars at Green Bay talk about these courses as fluff courses. And I really had to push back on her because I think in many cases these courses are more rigorous than some of the courses they would be taking otherwise. Or in addition, they're doing much more writing than they probably would be otherwise. I know, compared to an old large lecture class where you're taking a bunch of multiple choice tests, because that's the only way you can keep your sanity sometimes as a faculty member, that these are much more rigorous, the expectations are higher, and you've got to be present in order to do well in these types of classes. And I think we've all experienced situations with larger lecture halls where it's not unusual for a third of the class not to be there because they think they can get what they need out of a book or by copying notes.
0: And As soon as you start tackling a topic that's not traditionally a textbook, then you don't have a textbook to rely on, and you've got to start thinking about things differently.
2: And that's a great exercise in and of itself to move into sort of OER and direct digital access type things there are all sorts of things out there that are not textbooks, but are still primary source type materials, or even turn of ends type topics that you can really pull into these classes. And even the theoretical aspects of the discipline, how does psych address some of these issues, how does art address some of these issues, how does economics address some of these issues, even around things like the Me Too movement, or how comic books are portraying justice issues.
1: And it shows students perhaps that these are really useful methodologies for approaching and analyzing things in the world. They may not generally see those connections, I think.
2: I agree with that. You start looking at some of the popular culture issues through a different lens. I hope that the class that we taught on Disney really opened the eyes of students in terms of how Native Americans are portrayed or had been portrayed in Disney films, or Black Americans or how gender issues are dealt with. I mean, it's fine to just sit there and enjoy a movie, but at some point you want to start thinking through the larger social context that the film is being produced in and shown in as well.
0: I think it's when you start hearing the students say things like, oh, I can't go to an experience like that without thinking X, Y, and Z now, or can't help but seeing whatever it is. And I think that's a good sign of success.
2: It is. And that's what we're about generally on our campus, is beginning to open up that mind and open up different ways of observing and interacting with the world.
0: Which I think leads into a good question about how are you going to assess this particular program?
2: This program was started probably with a little bit more intentionality around retention. So we'll look at retention rates. We've again been in contact with the Nessie folks to see if we can pull in some of their questions, even though we're not in a Nessie year, and we'll look at that as well. We'll do some self-assessments or survey of the students and their experiences and what they thought of those experiences. And frankly, I want to get the faculty response. I want to see how they reacted to the course. How did they think it went? How did they perceive the students responding to these classes? These classes do not necessarily automatically, just because they have interesting topics, lead to high faculty evaluations. Oftentimes, new course development does not lead to high evaluations. you got to do these things a few times before you sort of get in your rhythm and really know what you're doing. So I'm hopeful that they'll start looking at student outcomes. Are they maintaining connections with the students beyond the course? Which is something we saw on our campus that even though they were not their formal advisors, they would continue and seek out those faculty members for other courses. They would seek them out as they were walking across campus, or if their office door is open, they would just stop in 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 a much more relaxed way than you might expect any other student to do that.
0: Sounds more like a mentorship role in
2: some ways. Yeah, that mentorship is probably a little strong, but it could develop into something like that. It's the connection. It's really focusing on what I feel is the most important connection that students can make, and that's with the faculty member. That's what's going to keep them here. That's what's going to lead to their success. Yes, of course, it could lead into the mentorship as well, but that's where they're spending their time. It's with the faculty across campus. So to the extent that we can facilitate that relationship, sometimes it's good to bring them down to equal levels. We need to remain some level of distance, and we have to ensure that the the faculty is respected, but we're also people. And sometimes students don't see that, (laughs) that we're people. And if we can get them in a small environment, if we can encourage them to talk, I used to require them to come to office hours initially just to make sure they at least stopped in a couple times. Those are all things that we can do to help make that connection to soon as we go.
0: A strong connection to the episode that we had with Jennifer Knapp talking about interpersonal relationships between faculty and students and that some of those outside of class relationships that are built often through the classroom mm-hmm. are really important and really powerful. So I think what you're describing is exactly some of the research that she was describing mm-hmm. in that episode. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm passionate about this area, generally, and this project in particular. I think there's room to grow this. I actually think from a resource perspective, SUNY Oswego is in a better place than Green Bay was in terms of sort of scaling this. Not that we go from 6 to 40 in a year, but I think as we move forward, if we find the type of success that I think we will find, we'll need to have some good conversations around how do we scale. How do we engage more faculty, board departments in this? How do we expand these informal faculty dialogues around these important issues? And we're always going to be focusing on retention here. It's an important element in student success. All of these are building blocks to what I think is already a strong SUNY go education. But this is the beginning of the experiential learning that we're trying to promote within our students.
1: Those informal discussions among the faculty are really incredibly important. In many of the meetings, when people are asked about what they were doing in their courses, many of them said, well, I stole this idea from Allison, or I stole this idea from Maggie, or I stole this idea from one of the other participants. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to see that sort of informal discussion. Mm -hmm. So
2: we always end with this question of, what are you going to do next? Ooh. (laughs) Well, clearly, we are going to assess and look at this very strongly. I've already mentioned that we've had some discussions around can these courses be structured around general ed learning outcomes as well so that students don't feel as if it's a, I hate to use the word wasted course, but sometimes that's the way they're looked at because Mm -hmm. they don't count in gen ed, they don't count in a major. It's hard to explain sometimes to students that it doesn't matter, you need 120 credits. That's a harder discussion for a new first year student than it is for a sophomore or junior. We'll look at expansion. There are some things sort of behind the scenes in terms of that expansion that I need to get a handle on in terms of numbers and what would it take and who's doing what and how do we do that. I think generally the other thing we'll probably start thinking and doing about is how can this seminar be the anchor to perhaps a more engaging, elaborate first-year program for our students? How can we improve our advising process for our first-year students? How do we make that transition from that first year to that second year for students? How do we really get the faculty to engage with the idea that the entire campus is a learning community? There are resources out there that not everybody knows about, but people can tie into. Those types of discussions, I think, will be some of the things we'll think about as we move forward. Well, thanks for
0: sharing. Oh, uh, this is great. Great
2: Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.